afternoon and welcome to the 17th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I'll serve as the host for these discussions. We're streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. You could just look for Scott Knowles and COVID calls or you can email me, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can find me on Twitter, at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word about the COVID calls and send suggestions for guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We've got a lot of great suggestions for topics, even this morning. Another suggestion uh, to have mental health professionals on to talk about um, stress, anxiety, PTSD, and we're definitely gonna do that sometime real soon. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. Tomorrow on Wednesday, Rob Kane will talk about crime and policing in the time of COVID-19. Rob is a professor and head of the Department of Criminology and Justice Studies at Drexel University. He's the co-author of Jammed Up, Bad Cops, Police Misconduct, and the New York City Police Department. And he's the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Police and Policing. Really look forward to talking with Rob tomorrow. As of today, there are globally 1,412,103 confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 1,324,907 cases yesterday. 386,800 of those cases are in the United States, up from 352,546 yesterday. There are now a total of 12,285 deaths reported in the United States, one third of those in New York City, up from 10,389 yesterday. A new number that I've been reporting this week, there are 20,191 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. Yesterday on COVID calls, I talked with five rising disaster researchers on a wide variety of topics related to their research. I hope you'll check out the discussion. If you, if you go to SoundCloud or you go to the YouTube channel, you can find yesterday's discussion already posted. One of the themes that came out in the discussion had to do with unheeded warnings. Several of the guests addressed it, I think Zach Loeb, brought it up, but many of the guests wanted to talk about it. And I've thought about that discussion a lot today. It makes me wonder about the incredible complexity, even when you have a perfect disaster response, which this has not been in the United States, but thinking about the complexity in the ways that a warning is understood. Information is never per perfect and there's no one way in which it's received, especially under stress. I mean, we can talk about the contours of human perception, certainly, but we also know that language, income, race and ethnicity, the cohesiveness of social ties, access to technology, age, all of these are factors that go into shaping a community and they play a major role in determining how much or how little credence someone places on a warning from a public official, even a dire warning. I wanted to learn more about the social factors that shape people's understandings of disaster and the social factors that also help them remain strong, cope and recover.
I have two great guests to talk about this with me today on COVID Calls. So let me introduce them. Daniel P. Aldrich is Director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program and Professor in Political Science and Public Policy at Northeastern University in Boston. Aldrich has published five books, including Building Resilience and Black Wave, more than 55 peer-reviewed articles and written op-eds for the New York Times, CNN, Huffington Post, and many others. He spent more than five years in India, Japan, and Africa carrying out field work, and his work has been funded by the Fulbright Foundation, the Abe Foundation, and the Japan Foundation. You can find him on Twitter at Daniel P. Aldrich. Robert Soden is a postdoctoral research scientist at Columbia University. He works in the area of crisis informatics, human-computer interaction, and science and technology studies. Robert's research brings a critical perspective to the design and evaluation of technologies used to understand and respond to climate change and disasters. In addition to his academic research, Robert consults for the World Bank, United Nations, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He will begin, congratulations, Robert, he will begin as an assistant professor in computer science in the School of Environment at the University of Toronto in the fall of this year. I'd like to welcome both of you here and thank you for coming on COVID calls. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So I want to uh, invite people to ask questions. You can put, the, put your questions in the YouTube live chat or you can tweet them. Just be sure to tag at US of disaster and we will get to those questions throughout the discussion today. We have many topic, topics to cover, but as I've been doing lately, um, I think it's good just to start with a sort of status report. So Daniel, uh, you first, could you just tell us, you're in Boston, right? Can you tell us how things are yes. there? Yeah, it's, it's eerily quiet. You know, Boston's a pretty busy city, relatively small, but lots of people moving back and forth. We had, you know, 50,000, 60,000 students leave here in the period of four or five days. Mm. All of Cambridge emptied out as MIT and Harvard shut down. Then my school, Northeastern, schools nearby, Boston University, Boston College, Tufts, all of them shut down. So we're pretty much out of a, uh, a large number of our students around here. And now we have students mostly uh, out of the community, but we have some people walking around. It's, uh, it's a strange sight, honestly, walking around. Very few cars, very few buses. It's mostly shut down. What are your top line concerns right now, Daniel? I know you're, you're a news hound like I am, following every twist and turn of, of this pandemic as it unfolds. What are your main concerns right now in the moment? I think the biggest question that I've seen comparatively would be about testing. Other countries, whether it's Italy or Korea, have done a really good job about moving ahead of the virus, figuring out which communities need to be in a lockdown situation, which don't need to be locked down. And we have, as a country, really fallen behind. So I'm, I'm most concerned that we are still struggling to get our testing speed up to par with other countries. Robert, you're based in New York. Uh, how are things from your vantage point there? Sure, maybe, maybe very similar to how Daniel described it in terms of I live um, on the Upper West Side, right near, right near Columbia University. So similarly, uh, much quieter than, than normal. Um, I think we're in, we're in about week four of lockdown now. Um, and luckily, both my partner and I have, have been able to stay healthy. Um, so I think personally, there's, there's a bit of finding kind of a new rhythm of, of life and work in, in quarantine, um, along with a bit of growing fatigue. Sort of New York is the big city. Um, so much of New York is about being out and about and having a very active public life. So really missing all of that, missing being on campus and getting to work with, with students. 
Um, so it's just a really kind of odd sensation, even if we're kind of lucky enough to settle in and find a bit of normalcy right now. Um, also starting to feel like this is just how it's going to be for a while. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that, I, that, that sense that um, we're not going to be going out anytime soon, I think is dawning on people in, in many different ways. Um, I want to come to you, Daniel, and ask you, you know, one of the main concepts you use in your work is, is social capital. I wonder if you could just, let's just start with that. What is social capital, the way you think about it, the way you use it, and, and then more broadly, what's the relationship between social capital and COVID-19? Yeah, so social capital is the tie that binds us to other people, and they're different types, right? We have bonding, bridging, and linking ties, bonding ties, are people who are quite similar to us. It's called homophily in sociology. Bridging ties are across ethnicities, religion, race. Those are often through institutions like, uh, let's see, a school or a club or a church or synagogue or mosque. And then linking ties are vertical ties to people in power and authority. And what m my research has been focused on for a long time now has been the role of these kinds of ties in helping people get through major shocks. So whether it's the 2005 Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, or the 2011 triple disasters in Japan, I've been really thinking about how do these connections help us through. And my obsession now, I think, is one of my critics have called it, my obsession is the belief that these ties really are some of the most important resources that we can have access to. And COVID-19's physical distancing makes it all the more important to recognize their power. So as you might have heard, initially the language was about social distancing. Uh, the WHO and other organizations have moved away from that language, but that language implies that the way you get through this is in a sense by cutting off connections, social distancing. It's also kind of an ambiguous term, right? What does that mean? Right. Physical distancing is much more concrete, it's accurate, it's what we're supposed to be doing, and allows us to think through how these ties can help us, even at a moment when we can't see people so clearly face-to-face. -face. Hmm. So just working with those three concepts you were talking about, these different ties, bonding ties, that's, that's family, that's close ties, bridging, is um, across different kinds of social groups. And the third one you said was, was linking. So yes. that's where we're talking verticality, hierarchies in society. Let's take that one for a second. How is that, I'm asking you to do on the spot disaster sociology here, but how are our linking ties working right now in the United States? Yeah, the, unfortunately most obvious examples have been celebrities and professional athletes who because of their position and their connections to people with more power than them were able to get tests within minutes or, or hours of their need when the average American is still waiting, <laughs> maybe waiting for weeks or months to get tested, right? You heard immediately whole NBA teams had 70 tests within an hour of them needing them. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly the White House, other, other communities with, with strong power relationships were able to get them. Again, the average nurse may need to prove, she, or the stewardess I've read recently on some airlines, need to prove she has every possible symptom of COVID-19 before they let her have the test. So what was the most obvious thing to me immediately was that people with these relationships intact are able to get those testing moved forward. But more broadly, you can imagine, uh, I've heard rumors that there's some sports mogul who has a private island, will be running some kind of you know, fight club there for the entertainment of the masses. Again, uh, you know, that clearly requires money, connections, legality, whatever happened to go into that process. A lot of things we're seeing when people are either avoiding the brunt of the consequences, losing a job, not having full health insurance and so forth, they'll come from those vertical ties beyond the obvious questions, like what firms are going to benefit right, right now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it hydroxychloroquine or whatever other, other uh, currently untested claims of cures? 
that are being pushed by president with a financial interest in those very same cures. So those are all examples, unfortunately negative ones, where people with power and authority are able to take advantage of those ties and move quickly into testing or uh, getting around the kind of restrictions that are, that are on the rest of us. Hmm. Let me ask you about the relationship as you see it between social capital and capital. Um, is there a sort of clear causal relationship there? I mean, often in disaster research, we start with the first premise that um, the most vulnerable communities are the ones that are in you know, economic precarity. What do you think about that? Is that a good place to start with the, as we think about the pandemic or are there other mitigating factors? Yeah, I, you know, I used to also believe that a core approach uh, to this would be how much money you have, the kind of insurance you have. We have a lot of research now across multiple disasters in multiple countries over different time periods. Wealth by itself uh, or, or poverty is not necessarily any indicator of vulnerability. Uh, we have a lot of data, for example, that shows individuals living in communities uh, like the shanty towns of Ghana have tremendously high levels of bonding social capital higher than their wealthier counterparts in more or less precarious in less precarious uh, housing conditions um, we have a lot of evidence that these types of social ties bonding bridging and linking those are actually more likely to be linked than social capital generally so for example we know that the poor generally speaking have more bonding the very wealthy are more likely to have the bridging and linking and less bonding this was true for example if you read elliott's work uh, on social capital in new orleans after hurricane katrina mm -hmm. when they tra traced african-american communities there very, very strong bonding social ties existed already through black, black churches, other organizations. They did not have, though, the bonding and bridging ties. Uh, same thing in Village de l'Est, the Vietnamese community in the northeast part of the city. Very, very strong bonding ties, both through a number of factors, Catholicism, uh, religion, race, uh, connections to each other through the, the mass migration into the American 1970s. Uh, but again, very weak bridging and linking ties. In contrast to my, my neighborhood of Lakeview, mostly white, uh, mostly wealthy, very, very poor bonding ties. We didn't know any of our neighbors really, mm. but very strong connections to the mayor's office. So there are, there are certainly connections between, let's say, wealth and social ties, but I usually don't have my students start with the idea that wealth itself is a predictor uh, or lack of wealth is a predictor of outcomes during disaster. I mean, I know we're very early days in our ability to analyze what's happening with this pandemic. In some ways, completely unsurprisingly, um, you know, we're looking at certain communities where the death rates among African-Americans are, are much higher. Um, you know, they're way overrepresented in death rates. I saw something out of Wisconsin, I think today was in the news. So in that sense, it's, it's replicating the kind of vulnerability um, that we've seen in other major disasters. But at the same time, as we're talking today, Boris Johnson is in an ICU unit in London. Right. Yeah, in, in, that, in that way, I mean, this is one of those strange moments we're just getting data, a very, very weak data on things like race. And it's been unfortunate that we have not had the interest until now in taking that seriously, especially in North America, where we know so much of our healthcare system, unfortunately, is much more divided by race, let's say, than things like uh, income um, or, or, or other factors like insurance. So race is certainly a factor I would think about in terms of what's going on in terms of you know, health beforehand, mortality rates beforehand access to health care, access right. to quality of care. Um, we know already that, for example, African-Americans going and looking for pain medications are less likely to get them than the white counterparts, mm. are less likely to be enrolled in experimental studies uh, than the white counterparts. We know from FEMA itself that after the disaster is over, African-American communities get less aid. So, so again, here I think would be a good example of where race and social ties interact. Uh, wealthier mm. white communities uh, have the ties, they have the connections. Uh, African-American communities, again, beginning with less quality health care and less access, probably didn't have that. Not to mention, 
um, as, as is clear in our country, a lot of the African-Americans in these countries were working as frontline workers. They might have been the RNs in the hospitals. Uh, they might have been individuals uh, in these communities, especially Chicago, we're reading a lot now in New York, um, where they were exposed much more highly than some white collar worker able to stay at home. Let me just stay with you just one more second on this. I wonder now, um, I like what you were saying, pointing out about the, the WHO's move from um, uh, social distancing to physical distancing at the same time. I mean, do we, are we gonna need a new category here for remote ties? I mean, is distance yeah. really doing something to the way we think about how all of these ties are formed, maintained, or how they can unravel? I think we're seeing a lot of, uh, of reimagining of what a normal social interaction looks like. So I don't know about your day, my day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. is basically Zoom, Blue Jeans, and Skype. Uh, yeah. You know, there's no other way to do business, whether you're a faculty member or someone on a, on a, on a firm or whatever. Certainly, again, we're protected. I'm protected in, in a way that my blue collar workers are not, right? People who are on the front lines delivering packages that we're still getting at our house, right? Those workers are not able to go on Zoom. But I think for a lot of North Americans, at least, rethinking what it means to be a member of a club or a church or synagogue, I see a lot of faith-based organizations doing prayer services online. Mm. Uh, my daughter's ballet class has gone online, which, which was, okay. I was surprised by that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, there's really big questions about the ways we interact socially. I think this might change some of them. For example, do we really need to have people going into work all the time? Can we really telecommute, which would save a lot of you know, carbon dioxide emissions, it would save on, on commuting times and use of cars? Uh, do we need to have schools that uh, are, you know, face-to-face -face all day long? Are there better ways to do education? Do we need to have, um, you know, uh, what's it called, uh, recreation as well? Can recreation be, rather than having to go to a, a park and play sports together, is it possible instead to work with people, um, you know, through whatever it is, an online game or an RPG or, or more whatever? So, yeah, I think it, this is a chance for us to reevaluate to what degree can we really integrate so socially in an online environment? Robert, I want to come to you. Uh, I know one of the concepts you work a, a lot with is mutual aid. And I, I wonder if you could take us into that a little bit when you talk about mutual aid, what does that mean? And I know you've been looking at the way that local mutual aid groups are organizing in response to COVID-19. So tell us about that work. Sure, so um, as I think Daniel, Daniel touched on, um, community self-help and, and pro-social behavior helping your neighbors during disasters uh, is a very common behavior. Um, however, I think that this framing of mutual aid, uh, these kinds of behaviors as mutual aid is potentially new um, um, or, or certainly gaining more prominence right now. Uh, mutual aid has a, has a really long tradition in, in, in the United States around community organizing and, and community self-help. Um, a lot of the activists that I'm working with now um, kind of tie this current lineage back to the, the Black Panther Party. Uh, and and the breakfast movements in in the late 1960s, which really um, were trying to connect, helping uh, communities meet their meet their material needs, while at the same time, advocating for 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 political liberation and, and, and political change. Um, there's a strong emphasis on solidarity over charity, uh, trying to emphasize the ways in which we really are all in this in this together, and that mm. everything has has something to contribute. Um, and this is a this is a big change um, from my, my past work in, in online digital volunteering um, with groups like the OpenStreetMap community who were so active uh, um, online in, in the aftermath of the Haiti in the Nepal earthquakes. Mm. Um, and so I think it's a really interesting departure point for crisis informatics work. Um, and right now we're seeing, you know, dozens, 
and dozens of groups around the United States, uh, I'm sorry, around New York City and hundreds if not thousands around the United States that are starting to, to self-organize, uh, working at the scale of everything from, from neighborhood to individual block and sometimes even a single building. Uh, groups of neighbors are, are using um, things like social media and other tools that, um, as well as simple paper flyers to find each other, mm. uh, get connected and find ways to, to support each other through this. Um, you know, one group in, in Crown Heights has over 750 members in Brooklyn and, and our group in our building has about five. Um, mm. And, and a lot of these, a lot of these, these organizations are building upon um, sort of prior, prior, prior groups. Um, a lot of the stuff in New York is, 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 is being arranged by people that had a, a, a large role in the Occupy Sandy movement, which in turn kind of built upon the Occupy Wall Street activities. Um, you also see folks like AOC and State Representative Jackson for the Upper West Side in New York, who are encouraging um, people in, in their wards and communities to, to participate in these activities. Um, and so, so I've been really trying to track these activities, um, participating in, in our small local group in Upper Manhattan, but really approaching this primarily as a researcher rather than uh, someone who's um, particularly involved as an organizer. Can you give us an example of some of the um, apps and uh, technological tools that the mutual aid organizers are using right now? Sure. So it's... Um, I think, and this is something that, that we see a lot in, in, in crisis informatics research on technology use in disasters. It's, it's, it's very often technologies, um, tools that people are already somewhat familiar with being repurposed for, for very different ends. And so you have folks using everything from Zoom, like we're doing today to have organizing calls, uh, to, I mean, I think probably about a dozen Slack groups right now, unfortunately, hmm. uh, trying to track, <laughs> just, just trying to track what's happening in, in New York, uh, you see people using, setting up Google Docs and Google Forms and developing these really complicated processes for, um, uh, for taking in requests for, for assistance from their groups, as well as sort of farming those out to particular volunteers and, and tracking the delivery of that assistance. Um, and so, so yeah, so we see, you know, every Facebook, um, Nextdoor, um, a lot of really common tools. Uh, GoFundMe's are being used to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars around the city of New York uh, to help people or, or, or to bail people out of, of unsafe conditions in prison. Um, and so it's a lot of technologies that, that you would expect, but being repurposed in, I think, really interesting and creative ways to kind of meet the demands of this work. I'm thinking about when you were talking even about the, the flyers and much more informal uh, modes of organization. I'm thinking even about the way that um, disaster victims after September 11 found each other um, in ways that in those days, you know, pre-Facebook, um, you know, the, the, sometimes it was literally people find because they had scrawled something and written on a paper and stuck it to a, stuck it to a fence post and in other case it was like um, listservs and you know things we would consider you know digital but pretty low tech mm -hmm. is that that's it's fascinating to me that there's a sort of archaeology of this that these many different modes are somehow coexisting in this ecosystem of uh, mutual aid but for this particular moment is there a best way for people to to gather and organize so i'd say one thing that's 
I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a best way, but I would say that one thing that's been really fascinating to watch here and that is maybe different um, from, from prior disasters that I've looked at is simply because this is so many individual groups sprouting up locally, kind of organizing in, in more of a horizontal or network sort of fashion. Uh, what we saw very early on was a couple groups in Boston and New York developed a really simple um, set of tools really centered around Google Docs, uh, WhatsApp, chat rooms, and, and Google Forms um, for organizing their neighbors for, you know, flyer templates and, and for, again, kind of taking in requests and, and, and developing a process for, for, for meeting those. Um, and that, that pattern uh, that was developed with kind of those suite of tools has rapidly been copied across many, many different groups. Um, and so you see this really interesting kind of patterning process where, mm -hmm. where it really eases the onboarding uh, and the startup of new groups, but it also allows um, local groups to experiment with and, and customize these tools to kind of their their local their ne their neighborhoods and, and and how they want to organize locally and so that's that's something that I'm certainly going to be going to be watching and thinking about a lot as this goes forward. What are some of the most acute needs that are popping up as you're monitoring the way that mutual aid groups are are functioning? Sure. So there's there's a I would say there's probably a couple of of broad categories of assistance that that people seem to be providing. Um, and the first is information. There's a whole lot of information sharing going on. Mm -hmm. um, and we can maybe put a pin in that and come back to it mm -hmm. uh, later if you wanted. Uh, but then also very simple things like acting as, as delivery services for, for things like groceries, prescriptions. Um, and this is really important in New York right now because a lot of the normal delivery services like Instacart um, and those other services are really overwhelmed and, and thus very hard to schedule. Um, as I mentioned before, there's, already, there's a lot of fundraising going on. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars are being um, organized online to help people that are out of work. You know, there's a huge unemployment now in the service and the entertainment industry in New York, um, but also by things like PPEs for, for the local hospitals. Um, interestingly, I, I want to also just sort of point out that there's a lot of political organizing happening at the same time. Uh, and so people are circulating yeah. petitions, uh, circulating um, uh, call-in uh, instructions for how to call the governor or, or the state senator uh, and make certain demands. And, and I think the ways in which the providing of kind of the material and information needs as well as uh, this, this political organizing is something that we haven't seen as much of in, in, in prior events, uh, at least from a crisis informatics perspective. So. That's another thing we'll be watching. I'm gonna come back to this is a question for both of you. I'm gonna start with you, Daniel, because I was I've been talking when I have social scientists on COVID calls, uh, and yesterday I had five uh, great researchers talking about this. You know, so Daniel, how do you collect data at this time? Uh, you're a person who's very much in the field uh, in many different countries um, to put your studies together. What kinds of changes are you going through as a researcher right now, the way you think about data collection? Yeah, it's been pretty hard. You know, my normal MO is, as you mentioned, to go to Japan or someplace and begin talking to people. And unfortunately, I had multiple trips to summer planned beginning in about three weeks, actually, and they've all been canceled, of course. So what I'm trying to do now is work with other scholars around the country to use different methods than I would normally. So one of them is the simple one, which is calling up businesses uh, that are nearby that are still open and asking for a simple interview via Zoom or Skype or the phone, just getting some basic information about what the businesses are doing. We're interested in how this is affecting local communities. 
Uh, and similarly, we're talking about the network of colleagues now printing out postcards with either a URL or a QR code on it that will have, a, when you scan it or type it in, it'll take you to an online survey and then dropping those postcards in two or 200 mailboxes in each community. Uh, we're also talking about now uh, using county level data across mm. North America to think through broader questions of the social ties that we mentioned before, bonding, bridging, and linking, and how those link up, uh, sorry, how those tie in with COVID-19 outcomes. And also in Japan, we're getting pretty good data now at a sub-regional level. Uh, there's 47 prefectures in Japan, so we have data over time. And we've actually, we actually already had some interesting results uh, from the Japan data, in fact, uh, showing very different outcomes for COVID-19 infections, at least measured by testing, and also mortality uh, based on whether it's primarily bonding in the community or bridging and linking. And what we're finding so far is that communities, at least in this first cut of Japan, uh, that have more bonding ties have higher mortality, higher infection rates. Those that have broader, more diverse ties, the bridging and bonding, those have lower uh, compared to the bonding cases, uh, bonding communities. So that's a very first cut, rudimentary, uh, but a very interesting finding. Uh, again, so we've talked a little bit about these ties. Uh, we think we're, see we're seeing here is that communities where bonding ties are the most prevalent are ones where people have smaller, tighter networks, so mostly family, grandparents maybe nearby, uh, maybe kin or cousins hanging out at the home. Uh, communities that have more bridging and bonding, bridging and linking ties uh, may have smaller, maybe even single individuals rather than families in a whole, but also maybe getting different types of information as well. So if the only information you get comes from one source or one person, maybe you're not taking as seriously the need to shelter in place, yeah. or alternatively, maybe the very presence of the bridging and bonding ties indicates tying into broader networks, right, which are pushing you to do different things. Maybe there's social pressure to stay in place or to wear a mask or whatever. So yeah, we're trying to we're trying these other methods that we would normally do to get some data because this is so important. Hmm. So you're able to to employ some of this quantitative data that's at a, a at a pretty good, you know, almost granular level, but but you're still, you know, wanting to do those qualitative follow-ups. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I my my students know. I speaking of preaching, I am a huge fan that no one problem can be solved with any one tool. So all of my students know that I, I really insist that we do our best to integrate qualitative and quantitative work in everything that we do, especially right now, um, when so much of the discussion uh, at, a, at a, even a, let's say, census block level doesn't tell us the story of how it's looking for a, an individual business or an individual family. So we re really want to know what's going on. So yeah, using qualitative stories to back up and uh, improve our models is so important. Robert, I want to follow up with you on the same question. Um, you were telling us a little bit about how you, you know, some of the strategies that are being employed, but you know, what is on your mind in terms of how you're going to collect data at this time, some of the challenges you're facing? Sure. So um, I'm approaching this much more from, from an ethnographic or ethnomethodological um, perspective. And what this means is I'm spending just an awful lot of time online. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said, I'm in sort of a at least a dozen different Slack groups um, participating and, and sort of watching conversations, um, probably the same number of Facebook groups, a couple of different email lists and WhatsApp groups and, and so on. Um, and really just doing my best to take a lot of field notes as I go on. Uh, one of the, the nice things about doing this online is I can, at least uh, for some of the conversations that are happening in, in public places on the web, I can take, I can capture the hyperlinks to go on to the, uh, and go back to those later. Um, and then every, every three or four days or so, I've been trying to carve out some time, a couple of hours away from the computer, uh, or at least away from these groups, and just go through my notes. 
uh, and try and do some quick analysis, try to see, well, what's emerging here that's really interesting? What are the important themes? Um, and, and then try and reflect on how that's changed since last week. One of the one of the challenging things about this is all moving really quickly and, mm. and changing really fast. And so being able to talk later about sort of the arc of some of those changes, I think is gonna be really important from a sort of behavioral and, and organizational studies um, perspective. Um, another challenge with, with studying the, a lot of these uh, community self-help work and just and these mutual aid projects is so much of it is, is informal that by very nature, it's hard to really assess um, the size and, and, and scale of these activities. Um, you know, a lot of the, the kind of conversations you'll see in public uh, will be someone putting out a request for help, someone saying, hey, I can meet that, but then they'll move to a different channel or a more private form of communication uh, to, to really work out the details. So while I think there are a couple of groups or people that are studying this right now that are attempting to sort of make um, get some understanding of the numbers of the people involved and the kinds of needs that are being met and the scale of all this, I think just by, by definition, it's uh, whatever we try and put on that uh, will almost certainly undercount uh, the magnitude of the work that's happening right now. Robert, let me stay with you for a second. I have a question here from Gonzalo Basagalupe, who was one of our earlier guests on COVID calls. Um, and he's asking this question of you, what of what we know about crisis informatics and networks is being challenged most right now? He says, we learned a lot from Haiti and from Pakistan crises recently, but he wonders how different this is um, including that we are all having to handle the practicalities ourselves now too. And you gestured at that, you know, you're both living the need for mutual aid and studying the employment of mutual aid. Can you um, speak to his question about crisis informatics? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really important question. Um, and so I think, um, thanks for that. Um, one of the things that, that, I, that I did mention um, before about it, but I really would want to stress is the extent to which the, you know, traditional um, spatial characteristics of this disaster look very, very different than um, say an earthquake or where there's a specified kind of zone of convergence and you have a lot of volunteers and, and, and people moving from outside of that zone to the boundaries of that zone to gather information and and, 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 and see what kinds of aid they might be able to provide. And crisis informatics has looked a lot at how that, that zone of convergence is moving online in really important ways. Uh, but I think what we're seeing here is, is, is just the fact that um, this is, there is no inside the zone or outside of the zone anymore is really leading to, I think in some ways encouraging uh, the creation of very hyper-local responses to this and, and a very horizontal um, and, and more network-like response than what we've seen in the much larger um, sort of coordinated responses in, in past crisis informatics work. Um, similarly, uh, previous work in crisis informatics, much of it anyways, has focused a lot on how digital volunteers can support, um, can support the work of more formal response organizations. And so you have people creating maps for the responders in Hades or Nepal, or people, you know, looking, searching through tweets to identify sort of calls for help that can then be forwarded mm. to the proper, um, proper responding entity. And in here, again, what we're seeing is a much more of a, much more of a mutual aid approach where you do have kind of neighbors really finding each other and looking for ways that they can meet sort of the, again, the immediate, um, 
informational material and, and, and emotional needs. remind viewers that I am talking with Daniel Aldrich and Robert Soden today on COVID calls and you can get your questions in on YouTube live using the chat or you can um, send in just like the last question came in send in question by way of Twitter just make sure to tag at US of disaster to get the, the question in I'd like to um, come back to this question we were just touching on there a moment ago about um, comparison and looking for, you know, thinking analogically to other cases that might help ground us a little bit in this moment. And with that in mind, Daniel, I want to start with you on this. I mean, you've written a lot about, um, I mean, you've done such crucial work about Japan um, and disaster and resilience. And you've written recently about Fukushima. And I've been thinking about that too, um, particularly around radioactivity, uh, you know, the, the silent, um, invisible, um, aspect of that which comes along with this virus as well and this sort of problem um, you know that we face with the pandemic that so many people who seem to be carrying it are non-symptomatic or lightly symptomatic I don't know what kind of what kind of connections do you see between what we're living through now and your own work around Fukushima yeah it's eerily parallel actually very strange so a lot of the communities Futaba, uh, Tomioka, Naraha, Itate, a lot of communities uh, further away, sheltered in place for a long time. Uh, some of them had explicit orders to do so. Others were evacuated and came back and didn't leave their homes out of self-isolation. Um, self but what we saw were a, a wide variety of measurable changes, especially in the mental health, but also the physical health of the families around the nuclear power plant. Again, not because of radiation. And that's often the first place that we go to. Um, in, in, in fact, the radiation results have been showing up now in thyroid uh, cancers among the children. That took, took a long time to, to surface, unfortunately. But what we saw really quickly, actually, within the six or seven months of the first people sheltering in place near Fukushima, were changes in marital status. We had a lot more divorces happening, uh, changes in mental health. We had a very high spike uh, in people reporting using Kessler-6 and other very simple psychological tests, higher levels of stress, anxiety, PTSD. Uh, we had a lot more people, uh, children acting out in schools. So we had one of my colleagues actually worked with school nurses to keep track of those reports coming out of schools in the, in the communities nearby. Mm. So a lot of strangely parallel issues that we're talking about in North America right yeah. now. Obviously, we know that I've, I've talked to psychologists here in Boston. Many of them have now gone online because of the demand for the services has really taken off uh, the last few weeks as we've been stuck indoors. Uh, of course, being in, indoors with a spouse all the time uh, can cause uh, challenges if we're not or, or what kind of partner we have can cause challenges if we're not uh, completely in the relationship to win it. And of course, uh, not to mention changes in physiology. So in Fukushima, for example, we saw a huge spike among children, especially in things like obesity and diabetes. Um, parents were not letting their kids go outside to play anymore for, for good reason. They were concerned mm -hmm. about radiologic, radiological contamination. But as a result, children didn't play. And therefore, because of that natural playing, uh, a lot of them measurably changed their body shape and their, and their uh, overall metabolism. So yes, I, I, I do see a strange parallel to Fukushima and what's going on right now with COVID-19. You know, Daniel, I've been 
Um, Robert J. Lifton's work has been so much on my mind lately um, because he took this, you know, he did these studies with Hiroshima survivors and really, I think, introduced um, some really crucial concepts around uh, trauma and coping and, and recovery and the role of survivors. But again, sort of intertwined with this problem of the unique uh, menace of radioactivity. Um, and do you, I mean, just sort of building on that a little bit, do you think that a similar stigma, there, there was some kind of similar stigma in Fukushima as well for those who were, yes, that's um, right. you know, even if they, there were no exposures or no appreciable exposures, there's still that social stigma yep. attached. Do you think this pandemic is going to have a similar sort of play? Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've been reading recently about attempts to give people stickers that said they had the antibodies wow. to, to COVID-19. Of course, we're pretty far from that in North America right now, but no, imagine you could do that. Yeah. Would that mean that counterfeit stickers would be the next way you get out in public, right? People who are, let's say, frontline workers, they can't afford to be away from their job. There's a, there's a, a black market to buy the sticker, um, you know, marking part of society. Certainly in Fukushima's case, uh, I have a lot of uh, interviews that I did with survivors who said, for example, that uh, engagements were broken off because people were worried about contamination. Mm -hmm. uh, their children were bullied at schools well away from Fukushima. Uh, parents began telling their children not to tell anyone else where they were from mm. or to lie rather than reduce that. Um, people wouldn't serve them at gas stations if they had a Fukushima license plate. So, you know, again, because in North America right now, COVID-19 seems, even between the red and blue state divides, which we saw initially, seems pretty broadly, broadly spread. I don't see that happening here to that degree. But certainly I can imagine if there really is a sticker or some kind of symbol that yeah. will flash uh, that we've gotten over the virus, uh, that will be an, yet another point of division um, for North Americans. I mean, I think the, the idea that disaster is unbounded or it cannot be easily bounded in time is one that we all work with in one way or another. But I, I see that as a really acute need for research right now. And just what you're talking about, like what might be the real, you know, at the ground level ways that people will try to um, adapt to stigma and get past this. I want to uh, ask you, Robert, there's a couple of questions coming in here for you. This is a question from Tim Schutz. He's asking, what is the transnational dimension of local mutual aid? That is, how do people learn and adapt ta tactics from outside the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say, and I mentioned that a lot of some of the early materials um, that were, that were put together in New York were based off um, some work that was done in Boston, but I neglected to say that there was actually a few London groups that had also contributed very early on some, some guidelines and some documentation on how to organize um, these, these mutual aid groups locally. Uh, there's a quite well-known, I, I would hope or think many people on this call have heard of uh, the Coronavirus Tech Handbook, um, and that's been sort of a crowd-sourced um, Coronavirus Tech Handbook. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's been that's also based out of the UK and mm -hmm. was a is a crowdsourced repository of of guidelines on how to organize everything from mutual aid groups to how to three D print masks um, and all sorts of other ways in which technologists can can contribute to uh, the coronavirus response. And so, what you're starting to see. Um, again, is, is, is a very sort of horizontal approach to, um, and, and a really kind of recipe or pattern driven approach to sort of finding what works in a particular place and then sharing that as widely as possible. And you do, 
and we are already seeing people kind of picking up these these patterns and recipes and, and applying them in other ways um, so i see that at present as being a really strong opportunity and an already happening ways in which uh, these mutual aid work and and, and local efforts um, are going transnational let me turn to another topic now. This is a question coming in from Kim Fortune. Robert, to you first, but I'm gonna ask you, Daniel, as well. Um, what perspective do you have on the way that um, the pandemic is shaping trust in authority and government, and perhaps even in different settings? It's, it's obviously gonna be sort of complex set of changes, but I wonder how you see that question refracted in your own work, Robert. You were you mentioning um, the fact that politics has not stopped in this moment. We are, we're having a primary today. I mean, um, you know, democracy uh, chugs along and you mentioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as being sort of active in the mutual um, aid movement. I don't know. I mean, how are you seeing trust in government and authority uh, refracted through mutual aid? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple things that we could say around that. One of the things I've really focused on a lot, though, um, that I feel more comfortable speaking to is, is the kinds of information that people are looking for um, and, and, and what people are being given by the government. Um, so I think probably like, like a lot of the folks on this call, I've been uh, trying to keep up as, to the extent that I can with, with a lot of the models and projections and various dashboards that are being set up to kind of track and forecast the, the, the spread and, and impact of, of the coronavirus. Um, and I think it's really important to, to consider the kinds of uh, discursive commitments that, that these tools these tools are making. Um, and so if you see, you know, look at your typical coronavirus dashboard right now and you see a bunch of red dots mm -hmm. kind of spread out across a state or, 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 or a country. Um, and these dots are kind of different sizes trying to convey the, the, the relative magnitude of, of cases. Um, and, and I think that that, that perspective um, from a government, public information, public health planning um, approach certainly makes sense and, 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 and has value. But if you're one of those people who are living under the dots, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think all of us are now, and um, trying to take more of a street level view on, on how our communities can support each other to, to meet our basic needs through all this, then, then it's actually not very clear how informative these, these dashboards really are. And so I've been really looking at the kinds of information that people are both seeking and sharing in, in these mutual aid groups. Uh, and so instead of, you know, wanting to see where the dots are, people want to know things like, well, what are the social service agencies in, in, in my neighborhood that are open right now? What services are they, they providing? And, and, and do they need volunteers? Uh, which are the businesses that are open? Uh, who in my neighborhood is, is at high risk and, and, and how can I help them? Um, in terms of the government, um, a lot of people are, 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 are looking for just basic information on what social services are now available and, and are, am I eligible and how do I actually um, sign up? The, the New York unemployment website crashed very early on. I think it mm -hmm. was March 11th or 12th, uh, just from all the traffic. And I think it might back up now, but it's just been getting hard. And, and the phone lines for unemployment are the same. And so what you see in the mutual aid communities and, and on Facebook and so on is a lot of people sharing tricks on like, well, how do you get through to an actual person? How do you navigate the voice uh, recognition menu quickly to sort of talk to a person? Yeah. Um, and so these kinds of these, this, this kind of information 
um, that, that these mutual aid groups are, are prioritizing, that are, you find people looking for is actually quite different than, um, has, has a quite different perspective than, than, than many of the dashboards and trackers and, and those sorts of things that, that we're seeing that we kind of typically think about when we think about sort of the information ecosystem of the, the pandemic. It's awfully complicated when you try to map everything you just said onto the social science that we have that helps us understand how policymakers, how elected officials seek to act in these particular moments, you know, that, that um, you know, executives tend to want to avoid these kind of moments. And, but, you know, sometimes governors do find that their poll numbers can go up in these kind of moments and people who can disperse aid, um, you know, find they might get a boost in these kind of moments. Whereas, as you said, sort of more um, officials who might be uh, on the other side of that phone call that nobody can get through, they're gonna, gonna hurt. You know, I'm trying to think just the way you were just talking about some of those techno democracy hacks, how this is gonna actually play out when it's mapped out on elected officials. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, do you have a sense of that even in New York City? I mean, you know, what kind of officials, what kind of leaders are able to be nimble and react well in this moment to the call for the kind of mutual aid that you're seeing? So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to speculate on the impacts, but I do think, you know, one state senator for New York, whose um, part of his jurisdiction is, is in Manhattan, um, moved very quickly to set up um, a mutual aid network in, in one part of the city. Um, and on all of the flyers was um, oh, his website hmm. um, and his name and, and, and the mutual aid organization is named after uh, this representative. And, and so I think that was a really fascinating thing that I haven't seen in other places. Um, and I think more, more research would be need to done need to be done to evaluate kind of the thinking there and, and, and the impacts, but, but it was certainly really interesting to see. Daniel, you're an expert in the way that um, government changes after disaster. How is this pandemic, I mean, are you already seeing maybe some indications of, of how COVID-19 is going to reshape American disaster governance? Have you had a chance to <laughs> think about I, I that? Wish. Yeah, I, I wish this disaster shape American governance right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just two ideas on this conversation, which is fantastic. One is I would definitely include polarization in the way that information is filtered by different groups in North America right now. Mm. And we, we know very early on, and maybe even until recently, there are very different messaging for different types of news media, and then bottom-up messaging as well from communities, what they were doing. Uh, on my Facebook feed, for example, from, I'll call them redder areas, there are claims that we're going to go outside and have a picnic just to show that you know, we, can, we have the right to do so. The state won't tell us what to do. Uh, my more bluer areas were saying, you know, we should stay inside. What can we do? So that was very early. Beyond the polarization thing, we've also noticed in past disasters, depending on, again, on the type of connections that you have, people with bridging and, and more diverse ties, bridging and linking ties, tend to take orders from government more seriously. We actually have a really cool data project that we did on evacuation before major hurricanes. Uh, this was with Nyamataxa and Page Mass, we found that individuals who had broader, more diverse networks, they left vulnerable areas before the storm arrived. Those with more tightly bit uh, bonding ties didn't. And here, I think, when I'm wondering again if it's the same kind of response. Uh, individuals with broader, more diverse ties, maybe ties to CDC, ties to people in other countries, what's going on in China, 
those individuals took messaging quite early and said, this is a real problem. Individual, individuals who got less information from outside the country or from uh, less diverse networks, they didn't see it as a real problem. So uh, I think those two aspects of polarization and again, the types of social capital connections that are there also really drive information absorption. Hmm. I wanna ask you both this question, Daniel, to you first. Um, how will we know when this disaster is over? What kind of wow. measures? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I ask this because both of you are scholars who don't study disasters as events, but you study them as processes, you understand them temporally. So maybe there's many moments of it being over. Um, maybe I'm being too optimistic uh, right now. Yeah, but but look, I, how do you even come yeah. at that, that kind of question of beginnings and endings with a disaster like this, Daniel? Yeah, so, so Japan's triple disasters happened exactly nine years and two weeks ago, and they're still ongoing, especially for the 140,000 people who evacuated from Fukushima, uh, some of them six or seven times over those years. They moved multiple times to find a safe place and to find a job. Uh, that's still ongoing for them. The PTSD is still real for them. The anxiety is still real. The prejudice is still real. So that disaster is a decade later still going. We also studied population. We turned parts of, of, of uh, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and other areas near, nearby. Also a decade went by uh, after the, that disaster. And those were very geographically constrained disasters in the sense that it wasn't all of North America or all of Japan. So here, you know, I think the, the, the economic consequences certainly will be lasting for a long time. Uh, a lot of indicators were going into recession shortly, so those tend to have two to five year horizons before things get back to quote normal unquote. Uh, the ways we'll interact in the future, again, higher education thinking through, even my son's high school now, uh, the times that they start classes, how they're getting that information, again, starting to change that. So uh, in my mind, whatever time horizon we give this will not be in months, but definitely in years. Robert, do you agree with that? What kind of measures are you looking for to say this is over in some meaningful way? Certainly, um, years rather than months. Um, but I was, you know, I was thinking a lot about, rather than kind of my own perspective on this, trying to draw some lessons from, from the the research I've been doing in these these mutual aid groups, in mm -hmm. particular the ones that are sort of very politically active and really drawing on the sort of traditions of mutual aid in the U.S. And I would um, maybe try and try and reframe the question is less do we how do we know when it's over and, and how do we know when we've gotten to what's next mm -hmm. and 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 how can we be thinking about what what is it that comes next and what that looks like and, and what we need to be doing now to sort of moving us in that direction mm -hmm. um i think a lot of the 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 arguments being put forth by by the some of these folks in the mutual aid communities are really point pointing to kind of systemic and historic um, injustices and vulnerabilities in this countries that allowed this pandemic to affect some communities more than others. Um, and, and there's the old, I've heard this old quote from the IWW a couple of times about building a new world in, in the shell of the old. Um, and I think that's what a lot of the response of, of the mutual aid group seems to be trying to prefigure um, different ways of relating to each other, different ways of being in community. Um, and so that's, that's what I'll be looking for is to what extent, um, you know, and to what extent we can be pushing for everyone from the international community to, to the federal and state governments, to these local, um, emergent groups, to what extent are they prefiguring new possibilities? Um, and, and, and can they mobilize politically to, to fight for those? 
I mean, to me, it's such a more powerful way than counting casualties um, or dollars that will be allocated because of disaster declarations. But I mean, you're talking about thinking about this evolving into a new phase that if I understand you right, is a, is a very active activist phase. I had Julian Zelizer on to talk last week and we were talking about, you know, the politics of Bernie Sanders, which um, particularly around healthcare, which every other candidate on the stage of those debates said, this is too far. We like you, Bernie, but these ideas are just too far for your average American. Um, that was not 10 years ago. That was like three and a half weeks ago. I mean, is that the kind of thing you're talking about with mutual aid groups, that this evolution into some next phase of this is really engaging those kinds of broader struggles? I think a lot of the, the groups that I'm following and a lot of sort of ways in which this they are sort of seeing the politics of this event certainly line up with with that kind of thinking um and, and at the same time there's a lot of people that are you know reading naomi klein now and thinking about the shock doctrine and disaster mm -hmm. capitalism and and worry and, and and very worried about uh this this event being used to to push the country um in, in the opposite direction just have a couple of minutes left, but we do have time if anybody wants to get a, a final question in to the YouTube uh, chat or to send it via Twitter, just tag me at US of Disaster to get a question in for Daniel Aldrich or Robert Soden. Question um, for both of you, Daniel, to you first. We touched on this a little bit when we are talking about radioactivity, but I'm worried that uh, slow disaster research, like climate change research, uh, is going to take a real hit right now that we don't our research community is pretty small and, and when i say disaster research i pitch a very big tent but it's still um i'm worried there's not enough people in that tent to be able to do the pandemic research and also not have to veer away from climate change research i i don't know how you're thinking about this right now it's sort of like disasters fast and slow right. um can we yeah, I'm actually optimistic. I've seen some really cool crossovers. Hmm. People looking very closely right now, for example, uh, at the Venetian Canal waters, for example, in Italy, at levels of pollution from Chinese factories, uh, at car and Uber use in North American cities. Hmm. So actually, I've seen some pretty cool things. Uh, you know, again, if, if we can envision that this disaster might help us turn the corner on telework, right? So rather than flying to work or driving to work or busing to work, we really could stay at our homes then we could really be envisioning completely different types of urban communities and different types of work days, which would, of course would change our carbon production patterns. So uh, it's, it's true. We are a small community. I think I, I think I know a lot of the names of people uh, watching or listening right now, Probably but I think so. at, at the same time, there, there is some interesting crossover that should be done and, and can have seen it done already. And I'm optimistic that this moment right now, again, where we literally have come to a standstill, you know, what was, if you told us mm -hmm. a year ago that we're willing to put all of America in stasis, basically, Right, and let businesses collapse, let airlines stop flying, uh, let people not go to work. I, I think no one would have taken you seriously. Uh, now we're saying, well, what, well, geez, you know, if, if I can be home with my family, if I don't need to travel all the time, if I don't need to fly or drive all the time, what a quite different vision, right, of what working might look like in a year or two. So I'm optimistic this might change things. It's interesting when you said, and others have pointed out that um, one of the crucial things that needed to happen was sort of jarring loose the very, um, very staid and static politics around the climate debate and that this is a this is a real forcing event um, for the politics around 
slow disaster more generally and pandemic, but also climate change. Um, so I, I take your point. That's interesting. I hadn't thought, I'm going to look more into some of that research. Um, Robert, same question to you. We're, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to see, you know, what's your, what's your takeaway here in terms of the research community's ability to do more than one thing yeah. at a time? So, yeah, I guess I, I share a lot of Daniel's optimism and, and would also say um, that there will be a lot of people that are going to be brought into disaster research um, because of all the attention that this issue is getting. There's a lot of people who didn't know they were disaster researchers yesterday um, that are now going to be studying this. And I think that's a real opportunity um, for, for our community to grow and to bring people into the fold. And so trying to find ways, one of the things that we're trying to do, actually inspired in part by the coronavirus tech handbook is to write um, a similar crisis informatics research handbook and, and, and a way of kind of quickly synthesizing, here's what crisis informatics has contributed so far. Um, here are the things you should note and, and lessons that we've learned through, you know, over a decade now of very hard work. Um, and, and trying to quickly be, be very inclusive and welcoming um, as a community to, to the many more people that are now potentially going to be working in our space. Is that something you can make available already? Can I put a link up somewhere where we can point people to this uh, research agenda that you're developing right now? Um, when it's ready, I'd be very happy to, okay. to share it. Absolutely. Great. And I know we have so many colleagues at the Disaster Research Center. I'm just talking United States right now. The Converge project that Lori Peak is putting together at um, the Hazard Center in, in Colorado. I'm going to have Lori on this week, and we'll be talking about that too. I think this is a critical moment, just as you said. A lot of people who didn't realize they were doing disaster research who now uh, they're in, in the tent. And I think building ties in this moment, to come back to, you know, Daniel, your idea of building these ties, I think building ties among researchers right now is really crucial work that we all need to be doing. So um, great conversation, Daniel Aldrich and Robert Soden. Thank you for joining me on COVID calls. I want everybody to come back tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. We'll talk about crime and COVID 19 with Rob Kane from Drexel University. Uh, Daniel, Robert, thank you. Thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.